What up people, I hope everyone's doing well. It's your host Abraham McCarthy. Today I am bringing you another episode of Lost Words. And before we start the show, I really wanted to say a big thank you for everyone that's been listening and all the support and the feedback we've been getting. It's really invaluable and I really appreciate you guys for that. If you're new to the show, warm welcome. We chat to people from different backgrounds who have managed to attain success in their field and they tell us how to do it. And we want to inspire people, show them that they might be able to change their career, show them how to get to where they want to in their current career and a little bit of in-between. We purposely chat to people from black backgrounds, from Asian backgrounds, and make no apologies for it because these are the stories that we need to hear. And so far, the people that have come on have been absolutely fantastic. They've inspired me, and I'm hoping that they inspire you guys as well. Now, if you've been enjoying what we've been doing, I'm, I'd be really appreciative if you could just spend a second to... Press like on whatever you use to listen to your podcast and also subscribe and hit the notification button so when a new upload comes up, you know as well. And that really, really help us out. Today we've got an amazing guest. We've got Philip Olagunju, who is absolutely and utterly killing it. Makes me a little bit embarrassed. And he's the type of person that you think, right, okay, I'm going out of bed. This guy's up working hard, pushing himself, doing all these amazing things and he is truly an inspiration. He works hard, but it's been a tough road for him and some of the stories he, get, he tells us about just, they, they do, they resonate quite quite strongly with me personally and those of you who might be from an ethnic background might understand some of these stories. A lot of people might be a bit shocked with them, especially with what Philip does as a career, but I'm not going to waste time telling you about what you might or might not say. Let's jump into the episode. Philip, thank you very much for coming to chat to us on Lost Words. We've got some time with you today and you have your very busy schedule. um, And I think it's going to be fun listening to your journey and taking us with you about some of the things that you've done and how you've got to where you are. Um, I want to start, as I always do, at the very beginning. So tell us a bit about your background. Where are you from originally? Where did you grow up and what did that look like? Perfect. And and right off the bat, it's my pleasure, um, Abraham, to, to join you and to share some of my experiences. So my mum is Martha, dad is Daniel, and they both originate from Nigeria. Um, my, my dad um, trained as a civil engineer in Nigeria and um, did a master's in Hamburg, I believe, and then came over here Southampton Uni to do his PhD. My mum trained as a teacher and then joined him sort of late 70s, early 80s in Europe. And then I, I came along and scuppered the plans um, in the early 80s. And so we we spent you know an additional few months in Southampton. So I was born in Southampton, but I spent my formative years in Islington in, in North London. 
and that was interesting because in early 80s you had the national front still pretty prevalent in in parts of london certainly in north london and and so this was around a time of the signs around the area no no, no dogs no blacks no irish i remember um, that. I remember those yeah signs. yeah for sure and so you know, uh, uh, early memories of being chased by um, NF boys, being chased by skinheads, um, uh, still fresh in, in, in mind. But there was solidarity in Islington. It was a real cultural melting pot. It's not the gentrified um, upmarket uh, kind of part of the UK that it is now. Um, back then, you had uh, the, the Irish who were ostracised. You obviously had the West Africans who were ostracised. And you had the Gujarati community that the asian community that was um, indian community that was, that was ostracized and we all kind of came together and, and 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 became friends so that that was that was really cool so you had the hardship but you also had the solidarity and friendship that came out of that um, it sounds like there's power in numbers in that situation where you've got all these different groups who are trying to make it trying to fit in and you've got these something like the national front the way you're a bit more antagonistic yeah being, i'm being generous here <laughs> <laughs> and so the, you end up pulling yourself together and what were th- those different communities all come with very different cultures yeah was there a lot of intermixing getting to know each other's cultures or was it kind of we stand together but alone at the same time where we'll stand together but we were not intermixing with each other too much yeah it's it's a really interesting um, and powerful question actually because you've touched upon something there there was absolutely solidarity in numbers when when we were being attacked so I I remember um, our our local park was Thornhill Park and my sister had been jumped by some racist white girls Uh, word got to me back home so I ran out and there were some um, in Indian girls and, and guys who had witnessed it and then you had the Irish community. When I mean Irish, I mean sort of Southern Irish, really strong accented uh, community come, coming along. And so we all kind of went on a vigilante hunt to see if we could, <laughs> uh, if we could track, track, track these girls down. Uh, alas, they had jumped on a bus and, and, and dispersed. So, so when, when, when you, know, you had individual members of, of those constituent groups being attacked, then we'd all come together. But, you know, certainly from like the, Gujarati community, for example, to extend that to relationships, for example, never, never, ever in a million years would it be acceptable for a Gujarati girl to bring home a, a West African guy or for a, um, you know, a, a Dublin originated girl to bring home a West African guy and vice versa. You know, I, I remember my mum being quite um, firm in her view that, you know, look to your own when it comes and i'm talking about the context of relationships but that kind of extends right to sort of friendships outside of that um combative nature you know um so it's a really strange dichotomy because in one in one extreme we we came together to protect each other but then at the other end of the extreme there was no real intermingling no real real mixing beyond a a certain point so almost kind of had uh an alliance for the violence that might be visited upon anyone at any point any time and for the and for the animosity but then definitely separate from a cultural friendship 
and um, and um, relationship perspective. Completely, completely, completely. And it, it what was, do you think it was, that was? Do you you would think that in such close proximity, where you you share certain experiences, people would start to mix a bit more. People people would start to date. People would start to hang out. People would start to see different cultures. They'll start to see the similarities in their cultures as well as the differences. And it's those similarities that usually end up breaking down barriers. I wonder why that didn't happen as much. It's, it's really interesting. I think I think there's there's a really powerful influence from the first generation entrance right so and i often think about this what would it be like for me now at my age to go into a brand new environment a brand new context and space and be the only or one of a few how would i go about um interacting with the indigenous people or certainly other onlys as well and so i think one of the reasons why that, that that whole intermingling didn't really extend beyond the boundaries that were there in place was, was parental influence absolutely particularly within the Gujarati community I mean their, their families are extended by nature so within one household you'd have grandparents parents children grandchildren all within the same household and so Outside of that house, yep, fine, play football together, play cricket together and all the rest of it. But in terms of you know, beyond that sort of social, and as you've put it, Abraham, defence against and, and antagonistic actions and violence, those, those friends that I had would have to go back to their, you know, their, their matriarchal sort of um, households and I, I can imagine, I, I don't know, I was never really invited home to, to any of these sort of Irish or Gujarati households. Really? But, 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 I, but I can imagine it was very much, you know, the parents and the grandparents were facing their own challenges. You know, children playing in a park, we fight, we scrap. But, you know, these parents and these grandparents were going into workplaces, were having civil liberties denied uh, and, and for many of them, it would have been for the first time. So they would have taken those negative experiences home with them. And I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm just trying to theorize it in my own head. They would have taken those negative experiences home with them and reinforced the message to the family that we look after our own. So even though the children would go and play and go to primary school and there'd be, you know, uh, uh, cultural diversity ethnic diversity within those contexts going home and having parents and grandparents relaying to the family oh i had this happen i had that happen and i'm speaking from personal experience my mom faced lots of racial um tension and oppression at work and would come home and freely share that so we would have this unhealthy tension as children between wanting to interact and mix with you know, white children and children from other ethnic backgrounds but being very alive to the fact that our parents were facing oppression for no other reason other than they looked different and sound different to 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 to, to, to the rest of the workforce in, in that particular context or, or whatever so it was a real um cultural melting pot and we're, again we're talking you know 30 odd years ago this was the the, the you know the 70s were really hard in this country and the 80s was obviously the backdrop to that that kind of straight runway and so you still had that sort of suspicion from the locals as to brown and, and black people and 
here to steal jobs and, and all that sort of stuff. I think it's a different world now. It's a very, it's a very different world. And yeah. I wonder for your mum, did she teach when she came here? I think she tried to. Uh, and again, that, that, that's probably a contributive factor as to some of the hesitation towards, you know, uh, embracing with open arms the, 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 uh, the, the local um, uh, the local indigenous. I think she tried to. I think um, she went to teacher training college and, and got her qualifications and, and found that that kind of dynamic quite tough. So she pivoted towards um, cooking. And so she embarked on a very successful career as a chef, um, cooking for the likes of Royal Mail and uh, private schools and, and one or two others. And she's, she's won awards and, and, and industry recognition, but again, not without challenges, not without difficulties. And so it, it's a really interesting one, Abraham, where, where you've got people who have come from different parts of the world where they're qualified in their own right or experienced in their own right have come to this country, have had to retrain, have, have to prove their ability that they already have uh, kind of secured back home, quote unquote. And then upon retraining, still find barriers to entry and so have to go in a completely different direction. It's mentally taxing, you know, it's mentally taxing. But I think some of the first generation immigrants that have come to this country have got amazing mental fortitude right just incredible just a resilience that i i i, I struggle to really reconcile um in, in my head just an ability to keep going whether that's you know amassing enough income and wealth in this country to to, to give it back to uh, family members at home or this sort of single trap mindedness of we've made sacrifices to come to this country and yes there are barriers to entry and resistance and violence and all those sorts of things but it has to work it has to work they have to make it work i mean you yeah. have barriers from language to just simple cultural things let alone if you're trying to get into certain sectors certain types of jobs where people are going to have that constant pushback that constant pushback and i imagine especially with a teacher where you think about the debates that go on today in schools um, in Britain and America and Europe and Australia, from simple things from um, um, global warming or climate change, however you want to call it, where some mm. people say, I don't agree with it. I don't want my children being taught it. Mm. I'm using that as an example because it's, it's on the tip of our, of our, of our lips at the moment. Mm. But... I can imagine, and, and, I'm, and I'm, this is speculation, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, if you had a teacher coming from West Africa teaching a, kid, a classroom full of 30 children or 40 children, as it might have been back then, of white British kids, mm. here, parents would naturally wonder, what are they teaching them? Now, of course, they're going to be teaching them the syllabus, but is that, mm. is that fear, that interpretation of, well, are they teaching them they're, they've got an agenda. What are they teaching them? Are they teaching them things I don't believe in? Mm. I don't know any people of, from West Africa. I don't mm. trust them in the first instance. So mm. I definitely don't want them to teach my children. Yeah. Even though they're going to be teaching them the exact same thing, or maybe yeah. even better. It, it's yeah. a tough, it's a tough gig. And yeah. It's something that I'm, I'm happy, I suppose, I didn't have to experience just because of when I was born. 
yeah yeah completely completely and and uh, and it's it's an ongoing challenge but my father-in-law so my wife's dad um is a teacher and so whereas my mum kind of packed it in and said no I'll go off and do something else even though the, the something else she went off to do had its own inherent challenges my, my father-in-law uh, persevered and, and and cracked on and I mean I can only imagine the the depths of the uh, challenges that he's had to face over his career but again um, just packed full of such a depth of, of resilience and fortitude um, and, and, and I'll, take, I'll take my hat off to that generation. I really, really do, because uh, they've, uh, they've paved the way. And so, uh, so all of that kind of paints a picture of, you know, a, a cultural melting pot, um, uh, challenges that are inherent. And, and so my, my dad had uh, a number of strategies to ensure that his children not only survived in the environment but thrived right because uh, going back to something i said earlier on he had a single track mindset that this has to work because not that he's pulled up the drawbridge back to nigeria but look, let, let, let's not uh, make any mistakes here uh, nigeria had its own challenges sort of cultural cultural in terms of the different tribes um, political, economic, that there were challenges. There was a reason why my parents decided to look outside of Nigeria for, for opportunities. And so the, the obvious strategy that my dad honed in on was education and the pursuit of education and education being the golden ticket to ensure um, thriving. And so h- home was all about, you know, um, a- extracurricular education outside of um the classroom and so saturdays evenings my sister myself my brothers i've got a sister who's uh, three years younger and my brother who's eight years younger it was just all about spelling reasoning grammar uh, times table it was just it, yeah it, it, it was a lot it was intense um to the point where i think my dad pulled me out of school for one year to homeschool me at home because he wasn't satisfied with the rate of development and progress within the national curriculum so and the school you went to was a state school yeah it was a church of england state school yeah um and so yeah pulled pulled me out of school taught me from home which again i've got hazy memories of but i've got two young children myself and i cannot imagine the the stress and the pressure of pulling them out of school well, lots of people um, have gone through that during the pandemic. Through COVID, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, I think a lot of people have got new respect for teachers. That yeah. It, it, it takes a certain type of person to be a teacher because, I, I mean, my children aren't old enough to go to have gone through that. But, um, yeah, I, I know for a fact that I would end up strangling those children. <laughs> I would be imprisoned, rightly so, because yeah. I couldn't... I couldn't couldn't teach young kids all the kids if you're going to then start talking back to me it's going to end really badly yeah absolutely how teachers do it yeah there there are some very um emotional times during and what age were you pulled out of school i would have been about 10 or 11 so it was the year before going to big school as it were so that would have probably been um year six year five year six 
And so, again, my dad, strategic thinker, wanted to pull me out of school, pull my my socks up in terms of kind of educational kind of ability and grasping certain concepts in order for me to take 11 plus entrance exams. Um, During that time, the Conservative government offered assisted place so kind of half scholarships and assisted place to places into private schools right okay. so it, it meant it meant that, uh, that children from low-income backgrounds um could kind of enjoy the educational levels that would be previously unavailable to them due to school fees and, and, and what, what have you and so i remember going on a road show and, and taking loads of entrance exams based on kind of homeschooling and home training and all the rest of it. And I managed to gain a half scholarship to Emmanuel School based in Battersea, South London. But what it meant, Abraham, was that I, I, I commuted from Islington, um, Central North London, down to Emmanuel School, kind of South, Southwest London. Um, and and, and you know, the vast majority of children that went to that school were, were local to that to that region, right? So they all held from uh, Brixton, Clapham, Streatham, Croydon, Crystal Palace, that kind of Tooting, Ballum, that kind of locality. Whereas I was going in the opposite direction, going going up up north. So again, so I'm try, try, trying to paint a full picture here got kind of the primary school years of, of being in this cultural melting pot in Islington, having lots of kind of Irish and Gujarati and West African and West Indian friends, but the, 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 the lines of division are there. There are clear lines of division. Very clear. Very clear. And then I've gone to secondary school where, again, Emmanuel School at that time, you know, they, they, they offered half scholarships and assisted places. So you had clear divisions but across different lines rather than racial these are now socioeconomic lines because a a lot of my friends who are still my lifelong friends now we were second generation immigrants we came from relatively low-income backgrounds you know we were west african origin and we were in the same classes and the same uh, kind of um, after school clubs and the same school football teams and rugby teams and cricket teams with um, British, white, uh, middle to upper class children who, who, who didn't have to take exams to gain uh, assisted place. You know, they were on... Let me uh, kind of think of this picture. So you've got a private school. Yeah. Centre of London in Battersea, where people, it's probably become quite famous now because you've got the Battersea Power yeah. Station. Yeah. Borders yeah, onto yeah. Chelsea, if I'm yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a wealthy area, mm-hmm. <laughs> a very yep. wealthy area. Yep. So you have a private school that you traditionally would have been white, mm-hmm. upper to middle class, mm-hmm. British yep. children. Yep. This new assisted placement comes in, people can get half scholarships. Mm-hmm. Or full scholarships. Or full scholarships. Or, 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 their, or their school fees subsidised to a degree. So some yeah. sort of help to access to, yeah. to education. Yeah. And... And of course, what happens over a couple of years, the 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 demographics just start to change. Yeah. And not only is there a bit of a racial divide, and I'm not saying that it was only kids from 
from or people of color who got those um, scholarships. But at this time, as we're talking about, mm-hmm. a lot of people of color didn't come from the most privileged backgrounds. Yeah. So they know that when they entered in this school, it was quite clear just from looking at them that, right, okay, not only are from a different color, they also, they don't have as much money as we do. Yeah. And did you, yeah. and you felt that at school? Oh, absolutely. I felt it. You know, um, parties, birthday parties. You'd, you'd go around. I'll never forget. Um, I went to, to, I won't say his name because it's not fair. Um, but I went to his house and it was like, man, it's like a mansion. This is, this is like something out of a TV program. Then you go back to, to, to you know, our, our, our Masonette flat in, in North London. It's like, okay, um, we are clearly not as well off <laughs> as, <laughs> as, 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 as this. And, 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 and you kind of, kind of, what well, I certainly did, walk around in this air of ignorance um, until it hits you in the face. And it wasn't the first time. I mean, I, I forgot to mention that during my homeschooling um, period, I managed to get a scholarship into Chigwell School. Um, and, and Chigwell School is probably a, a, a rung or two higher than Emmanuel School in terms of, you know, the, the socio-economic backgrounds of the students. I mean, this was sort of money bags, right? And um, and I, I went there as a, as a weekday boarder. So I'd board um, Monday to Friday and then come home at the weekend on Saturday and then go back up on a Sunday night. And, and Abraham, that was like, wow. It, it, it was, you might as well have taken me from one world and plonked me into another world completely. And I would have been 10, nine or 10 at, at that point. And, and it was really clear that, you know, A, my parents are sacrificing everything to ensure that I'm, I've got an, an educational opportunity, but also B, the reason why they're sacrificing so much is because there's such a divergence, there's such a difference between our world and, and this world. And the only access point we have as second generation immigrants is through education. And that that is visceral, even at nine, 10 years old, clear, powerful. And so I, I was there for about a year. Um, and I think the, the school fees were just too much, even at a subsidised rate, the school fees were too much. So I, so I did a second set of of, um, of exams and, and managed to get into manual school where, where the fees were, were more affordable. Um, and and no, Chigwell School, there were no other black kids. I think I can remember two or three hazy memories. But in manual school, it was like, okay, there are a load of kids. Not only are they sort of black, West Indian, West African origin, but they're like me, you know, um, Samuel, who's my best friend, we've been friends now kind of over 30 years. I'll never forget I'll going back to his house for the first time. And it was like, wow, um, the, the things that are in my house are in his house, mm-hmm. you know, and then going to another friend's house, Nikki, and it was like, wow, you know, the things that are in his house are in my house. Because you do, you do develop this sense of shame that, you know, that, oh, I, I don't have a driveway. No, I don't have a conservatory. I don't have a, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't have a six-bedroom uh, kind of detached house with with a you know five-acre garden. You know, I, I don't have that these shared background, and then the shared experiences brought you guys together. But then, did it, but did it then separate you from 
the more traditional kids from Emmanuel or was there full integration? It's a really good question. And I think for, for some kids, there was full integration. And look, the, the thing that pulled us all together was sport primarily. So I was never good enough to be first team rugby or first team football, but you had participation opportunities depending on your level. So at first, second or third team. And so I always sort of floated in between the first and the second team. But all of your socioeconomic differences were were left at the door and you just cracked on as soon as you put on a school shirt or whatever and, and played. So um, I managed to play school, school basketball, football, dabbled with rugby. And, and that was the real kind of um, conduit for solidarity was sport and, and I loved it and and the banter on the playground as well and and um, I do look back on my years at Emmanuel uh, with, with fond memories and I gave an interview during the pandemic with, with Emmanuel School um, and, and I shared kind of fond memories one of them being the tuck shop we had this tuck shop that opened um, after assembly and the stock was limited because they wanted to ensure that it went and there were these sorts of uh, cookies that went that sold for like 20p and Abraham they were like amber nectar they were like <laughs> formed in the laps of the gods and it was just a scramble to get to the front of that queue to ensure and then and then, and then those who were more entrepreneurial would kind of mass purchase and then sell at a massive markup <laughs> and were they allowed to do that in the school no they weren't allowed to do that but they just took the opportunity to oh, see this is the thing I, I think schools miss opportunities like this all the time where they if they encourage the kids to do things like that yeah. start that conversation about entrepreneurialism and yeah. and I, I'm I'm deeply affected by this because when I was growing up in my primary school yeah I am um, we had a very large garage yeah. and my mum didn't park in it often it was huge it wasn't a double garage but it was almost a one and a half and it was longer than a typical garage now it was just really really large yeah to myself do you know what the um the the social center the social center the um the where kids go the social club Mm. um, was was fully booked on the days where kids actually needed it it was a bit of a strange situation and they Mm. grew up in was relatively middle class area so they had lots Mm. of there was lots of things for people to do people had Mm. money to do those things but the place that the kids would want to use wasn't available some of the mm. times they wanted. So I, I bought some cushions. I bought some beanie and um, bean bags. I bought mm. some um, treats, some sweets. I bought some games. And then I started charging people at the school. <laughs> it was like, like a pound. Ticket. And, I like, and I sold out and I thought, right, okay, I made different colored tickets for different days. Cause yeah. I knew there was a capacity issue. And I thought if I sell too many, there's going to be an issue. So I think I can't remember how many of it I sold. I sold, I think I was selling 15 tickets per day. Yeah. And I sold out the first week in an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, and people say I want us ticket for every single day, and I said, yeah. and I think I remember having to actually say to people, maximum three days in a row. <laughs> and, wow, this is... and I sold it for a week, and I think people came over for a few days. Then someone said to a teacher, and the school stopped me from doing it. Oh, and they had yeah. an with me. They said you're not allowed to make money within the school or sell the tickets in school grounds. Mm. So then I started selling it outside the. The group. <laughs> and they still, they, they they still shut me down. down. Oh, they shut me down. I was so upset because I was yeah. 
I that's my pocket money because yeah, yeah, yeah. making tons of money. I think it would have been fifteen pounds a day, but to a ten-year-old, that's a lot yeah, of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of money, and I thought, oh. Yeah. And at the time, I was annoyed, but I got over it pretty quickly. But I think back, yeah. and, I, and now I, I think if my children did that type of thing, I would definitely encourage them and go around. Yeah. How can you? How can we keep on doing things like this, whether the yeah. school's involved or not? That that yeah. means me. So I yeah. understand the tuck shop. Yeah, yeah, There were people who uh, who, who grabbed that opportunity with, with both hands, and and so and so that you know I've talked about the um, the different sort of divisions uh but but having to navigate those divisions right and, and i think you know the, the key skill that i i learned without thinking about it but as we're talking it's sort of crystallizing my mind is um is code switching right it's gonna so, be yeah yeah it's, it's code switching so you know thinking back to my formative years in, in islington cultural melting pot um, I remember you know, the main thing again that brought us together as as kids was sport, particularly football. And we'll be in a park, and the Gujarati boys will be speaking their language, and I'll say, "What? Well, what does that word mean? What does that word mean?" Those are not word mean. And so, over time, I start to not speak Gujarati, not by any stretch of imagination, but um, that would be my way in, you know, chucking a word here or there. And again, with with, with the Irish guys, you know, um, it kind of familiarizing myself with one or two phrases there and then kind of fast forward to secondary school and you've got different socioeconomic divisions there but being able to identify with different groups and maybe switch up the accent as part of banter but just switch up the accent and all that kind of stuff these things are definitely um important powerful and, and have helped me as I've you know, navigated different working scenarios or different spaces where um, once again, I'm the only you know, I, I, I only black guy and um, I can't hide because I'm six foot two. So it's like quite blatantly. The You're only not guy. inconspicuous. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> not inconspicuous at any stretch of imagination. Um, but then that ability to be able to code switch and assess the environment very quickly and then identify the the, the threads that might be loose that I can tug at. So, I mean, as I mean, I think I've got a similar frame as you. I think I'm a, just a bit short. I'm shorter than yourself, but as a big black guy, being able to code switch. Do you think one of the reasons why you probably have had to become so good at it is because at a certain point you're considered a threat? Completely. I don't think. I don't think it's at, at certain points. I think. Yeah, let, let, let me pick my words carefully. I think the negative perception of black people and particularly the black man, it's so pervasive within uh, culture, media, um, entertainment, the messages that are bombarding people via social media or whatever, that I can walk into a room a networking room for the first time and i can almost see uh, you know different expressions on people's faces fear sometimes not that much these days because i'm wearing a suit when i walk into these that's that's, the, that's the appropriate uniform you yeah, wear a suit, it's okay. yeah, it's all yeah. Right. 
yeah, absolutely wearing a suit. But if I was to walk into these spaces with with a hoodie and and and, and designer jeans, it's definitely fit. And it's definitely what are you doing here? In fact, I remember, and I'm sure we'll come to talk about the working situation, but I remember going to a networking event quite early on in my career and, and, and two white guys actually walking up to me and asking me, what do you think you're doing here? And at first I thought they were joking. It's like, what do you mean, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? And they were like, no, we're supposed to be here, but you and your kind aren't meant to be here. So we'll ask you again, what are you doing here? So obviously we're jumping forward. So what, t- tell us more about the event. Yeah, so it was like a, it was um it was a junior professionals um, networking event in Nottingham. So racing through uh, the, the timeline, I've gone to manual school, went to college, got my levels, gone to Loughborough University, um, and Loughborough being the centre of the country, got my got my first sort of financial role in Nottingham, which is not too far from Loughborough. So this is a networking event in Loughborough, um, in, in, Notting- in Nottingham, sorry. Um, when what would this year? have been? This would have been 2008, 2008, just before uh, the, the kind of economic crisis, the credit crunch, the global and economic denies of 2009 to 2010, I think it was. So things were going well at work. It was a junior professional event. I was encouraged by my senior professionals to go to it because exposure, get your name out there in the local marketplace. And, and, and the strategy is as these junior people progress in their careers, you're, you're tracking them as you progress in your career. So those relationships um, solidify over time. And then you kind of start to refer work to one another. So it would have been junior lawyers, junior bankers, junior accountants, junior corporate finance advisors. So I've gone to the event with a couple of my colleagues and I've gone in and it's a black tie event. So obviously, as you've just put it, you wear the uniform. So yep. I put the uniform on and I've walked through the door and I could see two, two, two guys. And I mean, they didn't look too pleased to see me. I didn't recognize, I didn't know who they were okay there's an opportunity for for me to meet people and 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 you go with an open mind and and with friendliness but these guys were not pleased to see me and I think they had gone somewhere before because they were suitably inebriated and and with with with, with alcoholic consumption comes a degree of false confidence so they've walked up to me and one of them quite forthright in his view what are you doing here and I, I, I thought maybe this was a case of mistaken identity. Maybe they thought I was someone else. Maybe, I'd, honestly, I was baffled. So my immediate response was, well, what are you doing here? And, 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 and Abraham, they're going, no, 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 we're supposed to be here. This is an event for us, for our kind. What are you doing here? Your kind are not meant to be here unless you're serving drinks. Oh. And, and I had to walk away. I had to, in that moment, walk away. Because it's one of those sort of flashpoints in your mind where if I react the way I want to react, um, I will be charged, uh, I will be arrested, I will lose my job, and you know, all sorts of negative outcomes will, will be the result. So I have to walk away from my own sanity and to protect myself. You have to walk away in that situation. have to walk away. Have to walk away, and I'm and I'm and I'm saying it now to say I didn't walk away because you know maturity, and I was able to be circumspect and all that kind of stuff. No, I walked away because I thought if I do what I want to do, um, there will be a disproportionately negative reaction. 
and there'll be no justification for it as far as the audience are concerned. So I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, was it not possible to engage them with reasonable conversation at that point? No, because I was furious and you have to kind of control your emotions. And I've got a great deal of respect for people who are able to engage in level-headed discourse when confronted with such blatant ignorance. And, and, and I think, you know, that there are people who are racist, but they're racist because of their upbringing and there's a degree of willingness to be open-minded, to learn, to develop, to, to kind of move with the times and accept that, okay, uh, we're not in a Benny Hill kind of environment now. There are certain jokes that I can't laugh at. There are certain things that I can't say or do and I'm willing to learn and, and show advocacy and change. And there are other races who are deeply wedded to their view of white supremacy and even when confronted with evidence to the contrary that there is no such thing as white supremacy other than the supremacy that's been enforced upon people of ethnic minority backgrounds by whites they're not interested in that they they're completely and i think these two young men unfortunately were radicalized in that way of thinking their view was this is a white only event it has been a white-only event. By virtue of your existence, you are... Um, You've transgressed against something. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. So what was your headspace for the rest of the night? I just, I, I wanted to go. And I think I actually stayed for a bit and then thought, actually, no, this is not for me. I'm, I'm out of here. And, and, and I went home. Um, because... It, it, you know, yes, the vast majority of people in that environment were welcoming and friendly and kind and all the rest of it. But when you're confronted with that sort of naked resistance to you just being there, it, 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 yeah, it, it poisons your spirit. It, I, no, I defy anyone to say, oh, just, no, just brush it off. It poisons your spirit because how dare you? Who do you think you are? And then, and then diving deeper into that, where did you get that thinking from? Yeah. Like who, who poisoned your mind to such an extent that you would feel brave enough to verbalize it? Because a lot of people think this stuff, but to kind of, I've got the confidence and the backing to come up to you with my full chest and say what I have to say to you without any fear of punitive action. It's like, wow, my mind was blown. And so it was like um, a scene from a film where, the background to me was sort of blurred out. I was just like, what has just happened? <laughs> that yeah. is wild. And, and, and it was around about the same time. Well, a, a year prior to that, I, I'd gone out in Stevenage. I didn't want to go out, but uh, my boys were like, come, let's go out, let's go out. And I was attacked in a nightclub. I'll never forget it. I was just, and I'm not, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I love and not a fighter. Christian background, born again Christian now. I'm just about a good vibes. So I'm in the environment and this white guy has deliberately walked into me so that my drink spills. And so I've, and I was stood next to, um, next to my mate and next to another mate who happened to be one white, one black. So we were like a, you know, a, a multi-ethnic group 
anyway so we weren't kind of on a racial divide vibe from the outset anyway i've looked at my mate and I'm like, as he just passed into me and i just started laughing because it was ridiculous like we're just on such a good vibe and all the rest of it and as i've turned to talk to my mate and laugh the guy's come back and he's cracked to me from behind and the force of the blow um forced my lower jaw and upper jaw to collide and split my front left incisor in two from from the blow um and so i had to have it kind of extracted one of the guys i was with was a off-duty policeman so the guy who um, attacked me ran out through a fire escape the off-duty policeman gave chase and did an off-duty arrest um there were police uh, men and women around because it was sort of a um a leisure a leisure center quite setting so there were lots of police in the locality the guy got arrested um, I was invited to the station the next morning to press charges, at which the uh, supervising officer, um, quote unquote, encouraged me to drop the charges because there was no point. He wasn't going to pursue the investigation, so there was no point. And so I Why had was to. Why he not going to pursue the investigation? I, you'd have to ask him, Abraham. But he made it very clear that this wasn't worth his time. And actually, the kid was a good kid. And, you know, I must have done something to antagonize him. So let's just call bygones, bygones. And he was delivering this message to me and I was bleeding profusely from the gum because I hadn't been to a dentist yet. And so I said, well, what about corrective action for my tooth? This tooth is damaged. I'm, I don't have to go to a dentist to tell, for them to tell me that this tooth is, is damaged beyond repair. Um, and, and he made the guy write a check for £100. <laughs> yeah this happened this is real life this happened and so um and so uh, kind of a couple of weeks later and i took it up with the ipcc the independent police complaints commission i think it is um and after about six months and them dragging their feet i just i i i, I just stopped pursuing it so you became so, a victim of bureaucracy and just became a bit exactly and so that that was in my archive and then you go to you go to what you think is or should be a professional event you know i don't know about you but i always thought that people who are professionally educated weren't neanderthals in their thinking they kind of they, they had their thinking broadened and expanded so i went to this event thinking oh, i didn't even have any preconceptions i just thought it would be fine and then to be confronted with that it was like nah and imagine that wasn't your first ever networking event and that on that night out wasn't your first ever night out so you you've been in those situations before without yeah. having that outcome and i think that makes it even worse yeah because you know what should have happened and and i would probably safely say the majority of times when most people go out you don't get assaulted yeah as i say most people and the majority of times when you go to a professional network event you are not verbally abused or and, absolutely and made to feel a certain way yeah absolutely completely completely and so you know i find it really difficult when i hear um racist sympathizers talk about you know black people having a chip on their shoulder or black people um playing the victim card or playing the race card 
I'd love to sit down with them and A, understand where their thinking comes from and B, share my experiences and then hear their view. I'm, I'm not a victim. I've never, ever once been positioned as a victim based on what I started talking to you about today in terms of my dad and how he strategized and positioned. And, you know, he had a mantra, your life will be better than mine. That's what he always used to say to me, my brother, and my sister, as we were growing up. So we were never positioned as kind of look, look for racial issues. It was sort of confronted. We were confronted with it, you know, be, being chased and all the rest of it. And I, unfortunately, it's something that has followed me um, throughout my life and so when people say there's no such thing as institutional racism uh, you know we talk about radicalized Islamists but I think a lot of uh, people who espouse those views are completely radicalized completely radicalized in their utter denial of something which is so obvious and pervasive in our culture yeah agreed and and Let's take a couple of steps back and go back to university. You went to university yeah. in Loughborough, it's in yeah. the Midlands. Yeah. And tell us about your your um, career journey. What made you want to go into the finance sector? Cool, cool. So, uh, so take, taking taking a step before Loughborough, I did I did maths, economics, and, and English. I started off doing maths and all the sciences biology chemistry physics because because my dad man of strategy had a clear strategy for me to become uh, a doctor medical doctor so it was like do the sciences and maths and i failed <laughs> i failed those a levels woefully because i had no interest it was it was to make my dad happy it wasn't what i wanted to do <laughs> and um, and so there was that healthy tension in in, in the home and so as a, as a sort of compromise I said, Dad, I'll do finance. I'll do finance. I was a creative guy. I used to kind of MC and play musical instruments. But I thought, you know what? Finance is a is a happy medium because I enjoy maths. I enjoy all that kind of stuff. And and it, it makes Dad happy. So went to Loughborough, did accounting and financial management. Um, but I hated um, audit. Any sort of audit-related modules or topics would just send me to sleep. I had no interest in them at all. I just found them so painful. Yeah, I think a lot um, of people could share that sentiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout, shout out to all my audit colleagues. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but corporate finance, sort of strategy, um, the, the, the concept of mergers and acquisitions, two separate companies coming together to form one, kind of you know, leveraging their synergies and all that kind of stuff. It really, it really genuinely interested me and excited me. And so I used to sit up straighter at my corporate finance or MA or strategy related modules. Um, and less so for the kind of audit and accounts module. So on, on, on graduation, I kind of did a bit of research about entry level roles that would tick that box. You know, give you the, the, the exposure to, to advisory, give you the exposure to, to strategy, but also have the finance element. And it was corporate finance M&A. And I remember kind of moving back to London after graduating from Loughborough and just really struggling to find an entry-level role um, in, into corporate finance. The traditional route into corporate finance, as it were back then, was you did your three years in audit, 
uh, you qualified as a as accountant, even ACA or ACCA or, or CA if you're north of the border. Um, and then at that point, you transfer into corporate finance. And um, I say transfer, you need to have sharp elbows because you know the, the, the levels of competition were, were, were quite quite fierce. So there was no real entry level role as as at that time. But a firm called Tenon, um, they've, they're now known as RSM. But at that time, they were Tenon in Nottingham were looking for graduates, entry-level graduates, to come in as analysts and then kind of use that as a, as a, as a way of kind of developing a career. Um, and, and so struggling to find a role in London, applied for the opportunity in Nottingham, managed to get it. And that was it. I knew of Nottingham because of my days in Loughborough. And for, for extravagant nights out, um, we would either go to Leicester or we would go to Nottingham. So I, I had quite a few nights out in Nottingham. And, and, and if, if, if you know, that city provided a good night out, then yeah, it must be a good place to live. <laughs> <laughs> that was my reasoning. <laughs> That's fair enough. I mean, a lot of people think about that for when they pick university as well. Yeah. Have a good night out there. It's good enough to go to university. Let's go. Yeah, yeah let's crack on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, I went, 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 to, um, went to Tenon, as it was back then, Nottingham. And that, you know, that, that, that was an interesting time. I was there for almost seven years, 2005 to 2011. I was there and, and I kind of progressed through the ranks from analyst to executive to, to, to manager. Um, and so it was during my time at Tenon that I had that episode at that networking event. But it was a real mixed bag because on, on one hand, I mean, that, that, that was quite a, um, a visceral display of opposition, that networking event that I described to you before there were other more subtle kind of expressions of you are different, your surname is different, um, you're much darker skinned than we are, so therefore you must display certain behaviour types. And it's the usual tropes of promiscuity and laziness and having multiple children uh, to, to different women and that kind of stuff. And was that from senior management or was that from contemporaries? That was that was just a, a mixed bag, really a mixed bag. And I want I want to want to kind of walk carefully because I don't want to um, highlight anybody in particularly, uh, and, and then they 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 uh, then it just becomes something beyond this conversation, right? But but if from my experience, those are the things that I I faced. Um, but then at the same time, there was you no know, support for my career, and there was you know that I, I got put on the corporate finance qualification. I managed to grab a certificate and diploma in corporate finance, was given great um, autonomy when it came to, to leading transactions. So even though I was the only black guy in the team, um, in many ways that wasn't held as a barrier to me, you know? So yes, there was this wider environment of your 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 black guy, there aren't that many black guys, all, all women, um, in this sort of professional environment, in sort of this professional industry, in the context of the East Midlands, in my team, crack on, you know, it, race was never a barrier to progression, for example. So, you know, after three years, I moved to executive. And then after two, two and a half years, I think it was, I progressed to, to manager. 
and it never ever came up as oh you're a black guy so you need to work harder sort of thing it was all based on the quality of my output and my contribution to the team so um i'll never forget that so it was really interesting because there'll be flashpoints but then it would be like right i i'm I, i'm i'm moving forward you know i'm, I'm progressing I'm, I'm developing you know so and then 2011 where did you go from there so uh, uh, 2010 i met my then girlfriend now wife relationship was going in the right direction um and so i had a decision to make you know does she does she move up north um to, to be with me because she was down south at the time she was um, in and around london and hertfordshire or do i uh, take the plunge and go back south um and and also around 2011 that the there was economic recovery but the, the, the downturn had been quite severe and so the team that I was at the time um, had uh, had to make some changes to staff and some, some redundancies. Um, I was all right as far as I knew, but I remember going out with my boss um, at the time, still, still a great friend of mine and mentor, Paul Bevan, and saying, look, there's an opportunity to move down to London to be, to be with Sharon. Uh, what should I do? And he encouraged me to take it because it was a great opportunity. It was a significant uplift in salary. It was more exposure to um, London-based corporates rather than kind of doing regional deal-making that I was doing at the time. Um, and, and, and sometimes to develop and to take that next step, you need to move. So I, I moved to BDO um, early 2012, I think it was. And I was there for... Uh, just shy of two years and it was really interesting um abraham because i'd gone from the regional setting of nottingham where i was one of a few ethnic minorities in that industry um, or in that certain that setting to london which was just a, again going back to that phrase a, a cultural melting pot right and so um bdo was diverse uh, diverse client base, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Initially, did you feel more received, or better, warm, more warmly received? I, I, I just remember thinking in the interview and onboarding process, my race is not an issue. Mm. You know, my race is not an issue. I, that I, matters a lot because it's oh, you could take that off your shoulders. You don't have to think about it. Not that you should have to think about it, but it is something. And a lot of people who who might not be from ethnic minorities might not appreciate this, but it's something when you walk into a room and you have to make a first impression, whether or not it becomes part of the outcome of, of your interview, it is something that you're thinking about. Completely, completely, completely. And it's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. So I, I do remember joining BDO and thinking, no, that there's no overt or subtle reference to my race even in quote-unquote banter or jokes it's just i'm just a bloke in the team and it was very much about contribution and output and i, I struggled you know i, I I've, I've kind of put this on social media before i i struggled because i'd come from a regional setting of doing deals very relationship driven it's about who you know in the local market and look nottingham is far smaller than london which is a sprawling metropolis and i've gone to bdo um and and i try to adopt a similar approach to doing deals and working in in, in london as i did in nottingham it just didn't it just didn't translate at all 
it was just like oil and water. So, so that 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 was challenging. But in terms of my ethnic background and stuff, that that wasn't that wasn't an issue. And and as well, from a personal perspective, the main driver for me moving back to London was to take the relationship with Sharon to the next level. Up until that point, we'd been doing a long distance relationship. No, the primary driver for me moving to London was to be closer to Sharon. Yes, there were. Um, developmental points and progression points around my career but it was a personal decision and so my focus was you know, getting married money for for a wedding ve- wedding venues wedding suits wedding dresses all that kind of stuff that was the primary focus so even if abraham even if there were issues around race i was just oblivious to them because there was so much going on in my personal life uh, and 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 also work was a challenge for me in terms of trying to make that transition from a regional setting to a to 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 a, to a large city setting for sure. Tell us about your career just now. You're yeah, flying yeah, yeah. high. I think so, so, yeah, yeah. Things are going well. So um, first of April this year, I was appointed head of corporate finance at PEM um, in in Cambridge. PEM uh, stands for Peter Zellsworthy and more established in 1875 so the oldest and largest accounting uh, practicing in cambridge and, and taking a step away from that looking at the uk as a whole probably one of the oldest and, and largest single city accounting practices in the uk so it's a huge privilege first as i understand it as i know first black partner first person of color to be appointed partner at the firm in its 140 odd years of history so it's fantastic and it's great for visibility it's great for um kind of signposting for other ethnic minorities in corporate finance in m a who look upwards and don't see people who look like them or have had a similar experience and journey to them i mean that's a, that's a huge achievement when you think you're the first you're the first black person that's become that's got to that level over the years. Now I've got a good friend who always talks about it. She doesn't want to shatter any glass ceilings. She wants, she never wants to be number one. She wants to be number two, but mm. in that very, in, in what you've done, you shattered a, a ceiling. It mm. might be a ceiling that was ready to be shattered. You didn't necessarily have to take a hammer to it. You could have just tapped it and it was ready to go down. Yeah. But do you, her worry is that she feels that, that thick weight of responsibility now that she's done it do you have that feeling or is it very much do you know what this is this was my trajectory if i were white it wouldn't be an issue so for me i'm there and it's not an issue i I don't feel that weight it's a tension that i have to manage i'm not gonna lie it's a tension that i have to manage and and i think um you know, when when you overlay what happened in in lockdown with the public execution of George Floyd, and the and the public expression from the black uh, black community that enough is enough globally, that we cannot live in a world where this is normalised and accepted, and you no know, stories coming out from different backgrounds and circles of you know, racial oppression and violence and and discrimination. Um, it's a tension that, that I have to manage because at one point I do feel the weight of responsibility. When I look around you know, my firm, when I look around Cambridge, when I look around even nationally, you know, there are very few MA, corporate finance um, partners, leaders 
of a black or a black background the the the, the south asian the south the south indian uh, community have, have got there and that's a whole different conversation but you know that, that so i was about to use ethnic minorities but that's not the case because you've got a, a, a kind of a, a strong asian and indian representation but certainly from a black perspective I, I don't see it so on one hand i feel the weight of responsibility to kind of shatter ceilings to kick down doors to to shout from the rooftops i've done it you can do it too but th- th- even that is really dangerous because you know i have had certain opportunities i have had doors opened i have had people pour into me sponsor me back me that others may not have so it's really simple and basic to say i've done it you can do it too i I kind of steer away from that and so this healthy tension between wanting to be representative for black people to say there there is no reason why you shouldn't be able to get through the door on grounds of race that is just archaic and immoral and wrong but at the same time you're absolutely right in what you say if i was a white guy it would just be business as usual there would no there would be no sort of um fanfare made about it it would just be oh you've done well you've reached the 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 pinnacle of your career fantastic crack on and i think as well and i'm really starting to share my my deep views black people are not a monolith that they're not a monolith we are we are we are as diverse as white people so just because we are in a minority numerically it doesn't mean that one represents all or all represents one so of course i'm going to look out for obvious barriers to entry and obvious discriminations and, and, and obvious negative social injustices that need to be eradicated. I'm going to look out for that. And I'm super, super passionate about equality, inclusion, diversity. I, I just am. Uh, maybe as a byproduct of what I've gone through, maybe as a byproduct of what I see, whatever. I'm super passionate about it. But if you are a young black guy and you come to me with you know, a poor attitude, you're not willing to work hard you haven't sat the exams you need to sit but because i'm black and you're black i've got to give you away or got to give you a pass the answer is no do you know what i mean the answer is no because actually work hard not twice as hard but work hard crack on show, you're worthy. show, show you're you're worthy. worthy show you're worthy show you're worthy i've got a couple of questions but one of the first things i wanted to ask then from a younger perspective, those people, yeah. those young black men and women trying to get into the finance world, looking at you, maybe we look at, we look at, we talked about getting into manual and also getting into Chigwell and you had those opportunities where it's part of the, part of the, um, the fees were subsidized. Mm-hmm. And so you had those opportunities and you could argue that those schools are set up for people to do certain types of courses at university, to, to get into university well, there's some schools where if you manage to make it to the end of the school, um, the, your school career, you've done well. Mm-hmm. But you have people who have got these great attitudes, who have got these amazing minds. How, what, what can we do to help those people go from where they are to, to, to 
to enter into the finance world to be potentially amazing strategical brains that could work our way out of recession, work our way out of all the crap that we've got ourselves into. How do we help them into that? So I've got I've got two answers that are immediately front front of mind, and there may be there may be more that that, that come that, that come come to mind as we discuss it. I, I often say have a strategy have your own strategy so you a stra- for, for me in simple terms a strategy is a route map to take you from a to b what's your route map to take you from a to b that there's a guy who's risen to prominence called, called reggie nelson um, and he's now into fund management and he's winning all these accolades and i think he's got a book coming out and he was from a from what i can see predominantly low income background and he wanted to get into fund management and so he went around uh, uh, an area in Chelsea, I think it was, and knocked on the doors of these amazingly massive houses and basically just asked people, what did you do to get to where you are? And I think one guy was so taken in by him that he brought him in and put him on an internship and all the rest of it. I mean, that's one extreme. This guy really strategized and was like, okay, I want to get to where these people are. I'm just going to ask a question and knock on the door. I'm sure I'm sure some of them have seen a black guy knock on the door. I'm not going to tell you this. <laughs> you don't <laughs> the door at all. <laughs> may, may not have opened the door. But, um, but you know, he, he had a plan. He had a strategy. So I ask, no, I, I, do, I do mentoring now. And I ask young men and young women who speak to me, what's, what's your plan? What's your strategy? And 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 no, map it out. And where you see barriers, look for ways to um, get through those barriers. Whether asking for help or leveraging your network or extending your network, you know what, what, what's your what's your strategy? The second thing I'll say is there are a number, several organisations whose whole modus operandi is to help people from an ethnic minority background or a black background to, um, to, to, to gain opportunities that they wouldn't all ordinarily have. So two spring to mind, one that I'm involved with and one that I'm aware of kind of tangentially. So the one that I'm involved with is the Alito Foundation. The Alito Foundation was set up 11 years ago. Alito. Alito, A-L-E-T-O, Alito Foundation, was set up 11 years ago by... Um, um, by, by two by two gentlemen, one of them is Sir Kenneth Olisa, um, who's done one, wonderful things. And, and the idea was, let's set up a foundation where we facilitate mentoring and leadership programs for people of, uh, kind of ethnic minority background to equip them with the skills, interview skills, you know, public speaking skills, strategic thinking skills, equip them with the skills in order for them to thrive right in order for them to thrive and i came across this on, on my linkedin and i was like this is fantastic again came across it around about you know, the, the, the outpouring of anger and angst and dismay at what happened to george floyd in america um, and it's not only george floyd there were so many others that it happened to but i think that was just the the passing of a threshold like enough is enough and i saw the elite foundation i reached out to Veronica Martin, who is the chief um, chief operating officer of the charity, and said, "I need to get involved." And and, and now I am. And, and the Elito Foundation is in partnership with BT, 
uh, British Telecom, PLC. Um, so a lot of the mentors on the annual leadership programs come from BT, you know, positions of, of leadership and influence in that organization. But there are other organizations and other professionals who, who, um, who, who partner with the, the foundation as well. And that is just a, a way to get in. Get in. If you're a, a graduate and you're looking to try and find ways into industry, but you find your ways are blocked, you've got the BYP, uh, the uh, Black um, Young Professional Network, uh, that, that, that's run by Kiki. Um, you've got a 10,000 Black Interns program, which was set up by um, Wal Kalade and one or two others. Um, to effectively partner with organizations and financial institutions like global heavyweights to say, by a certain point in time, we will have 10,000 black interns because people uh, of, of black and minority ethnic backgrounds in position of leadership were continually hearing there's no pipeline, there's no pipeline, there's no pipeline in terms of young black and ethnic minority children coming through. So you know, the three of them uh, club together to form this initiative and you know organizations have been signing up in their droves to get involved because you know you've got this sort of ESG um kind of ESG sort of culture now environmental social governance and, and, and companies not only looking at sustainability in terms of how they can be environmentally friendly but also right how can we um engender cultures of social inclusion and uh, we keep on hearing, don't we, that there aren't any, for example, uh, black FTSE 100 chief executives or C-suite members. Uh, so there's all of these issues around pipeline, pipeline, pipeline. So what can you do to address pipeline? Facilitate it. And so that, that again, that's one there. The, there's the SEO um, organization, which again partners with black and, and, and ethnic minority graduates. And, and trains them and then kind of uh, provides a roadmap for them to get into organizations. There's Rare Recruitment, which is a fantastic recruitment um, consultancy focused primarily on black and ethnic minority graduates and, and, and has partnered with organizations that gets them in there. Um, if you're not at that level, but you're a little bit further ahead in your career, there's, there's Green Park Recruitment, which is again, primarily focused on diversity, inclusion, um, and equality and, and, and getting people from, from black and ethnic minority backgrounds into roles that they probably wouldn't ordinarily be considered for. So there are so many different initiatives that are, that are happening concurrently. Um, so my advice to any young person who's like, I've got this strategic mind, I really want to get into the labour market, but I don't know how, do the research. But before you do the research, plan your strategy. Do you want to work in fund management? Do you want to work in asset management? Do you want to work in corporate finance? Do you want to work as an accountant? Do you want to work as a hedge fund manager? Do you want to work in private equity? Financial services is so broad. So think about what it is you actually want to do and then reverse engineer, plot your pathway. And anywhere you see barriers, just leverage your network or extend your network. LinkedIn is a fantastic resource that I wish I had when I was starting my career. Because I get I get approached all the time by um You get by, approached a lot. You're on yeah, all the time. Absolutely doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's absolutely because it's all about visibility and controlling your message to market. And so I I, I I you know I think it's a fantastic resource. And I get approached by by you know young black men, young black women who are like, look, see you're visible on, on LinkedIn. Could you spare me an hour, spare me half an hour? 
speak to me, talk to me, give me pointers, tips, hints, and I'm more than happy to do it. There's only 24 hours in a day and I can't help help everyone equally. Of course I can't, but um, I'm up for it. And there are, there are tens, if not hundreds of others like me who, who are equally up for it as well. So. Yeah, you're doing what you can and you, you've, you've shown through your hard work, through your diligence, through everything that it can be done. And I suppose when you're signposting people, you're signposting people to where you are and I suppose we it's never right for anyone in your position in my position to turn around and say there's so many more opportunities now than there were before Mm. but I suppose one thing that social media internet everything's done the the technological age or technology age has done is it's brought everything closer to you you can engage with a you can engage with a company or foundation based in Surrey if you're in Edinburgh. Absolutely. You can talk to people based in New York if you are in Exeter. And mm. that is something that 10 years ago just didn't really exist the way it does. Yeah. And and that is something that people need to learn how to leverage. It takes time, okay. but those things that you've signposted to will help them get there. And it's, it's such a vital thing that we're, we're giving that back to people and helping them and showing them the way. Completely, completely. Um, You've been absolutely fantastic. I've loved chatting to you. Um, we could talk about so many more things as well. One thing I always ask people to do is to, what advice could you give our next guest on the show without knowing who that person is? What wow. Give them? Um, c- c- come with, with zero preconceptions. C- come with an attitude of vulnerability, honesty, openness. And trust, I guess, because, you know, we, we live in this fast-paced world where things are taken out of context. And so just trust the process, trust you in terms of kind of being open um, to, to sharing. And, uh, and yeah, crack on, because I've had such a laugh. It's been really good. Um, uh, quite therapeutic, actually, going, going back into my archives and, and pulling out the files. But I think there's... Um, there's a process of, I won't go as far as to say healing, but certainly a therapy, kind of pinpointing experiences you've had in the past and then kind of going through the route to where you are today, I think is really healthy. Um, so, yeah, that would be my advice to anyone. That's wicked. Thank you so much. Cool, Philip. I know how busy you are, so we'll, we'll leave it there today. But thank you so much for all your time. And My keep pleasure. fighting the good fight. <laughs> I shall try. I shall try. Thank you. So there we go. That was Philip chatting to me. And that was such a fun interview to do. And obviously we got quite deep some, at some point. We had a laugh. Um, but yeah, I think there were some really important points raised and some important topics that we, t- we touched on. Um, over the next week we're going to be having our Instagram page actually going live I hope everyone in the community jumps in starts a conversation starts talking about things I want people to put themselves out there and say right so I'm thinking um, I'm not saying cause controversy for the sake of cause of controversy but let's hear some opinions let's get some thoughts out. let's keep the debate going let's keep it spirity let's keep it respectful um, but let's get some ideas out there flesh them out and do some stuff with it Guys, thank you so much. Once again, if you like it, give us a rating on whatever you listen listen to us with. That type of engagement really helps with the algorithm. I'd like a five-star rating, please, and thank you. 
Um, but of course, rate whatever you feel it goes. Five star. You know you want five star. And um, like and subscribe. And we will see you soon. Take care.